Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited about my guest today. Wim Remis uh, is principal CEO and principal consultant at Wire Security. Is that correct? Wire Security? That's correct, yes. Not uh, to be confused with uh, encrypted chat clients. Not to be confused with encrypted chat clients. Wim uh, has been around the block uh, in cybersecurity for a long time, starting, not necessarily starting, but my first uh, introduction to you was during your time at Rapid7. You also spent some time at IOActive, Ernst & Young. So you've been through the penetration testing, security assessment trenches for many years. Uh Let's start by talking about wire security. What is wire security? What are you focusing on today? Well, first, it's uh, very nice to be your guest today. So thank you very much for having me. Um, what uh, wire security is, uh, it's uh, my own company. I provide um, um, a scala of uh, security services. Uh, I try to focus on long-term relationships with my clients. So a lot of my engagements are uh, around uh, virtual CISO or uh, the virtual lead of security development uh, life cycles. Um, but I also do everything from application penetration penetration testing to uh, hardware penetration testing. Um, I've I've spent about 20 years in IT and uh, more than 15 in uh, IT security. So I've seen pretty much everything from the C-level to, uh, to the um, really nitty-gritty uh, implementation and uh, penetration testing. Uh, so I try to gather that uh, that experience uh, and provide my, my clients with uh, the best services I can. Uh, let's talk about penetration testing because it's a topic near and dear to my heart. I heard uh, Ivan Arce, uh, who's one of the co-founders at Core Security, uh, on the mm-hmm. podcast recently talking about, you know, Ivan, obviously, uh, talking about the birth of the industry during that time when, you know, they were creating impact. H.D. Moore was working on Metasploit. Dave Itell was working on um, on on his uh, platform. How have you seen yeah. uh, the penetration and testing industry from those early days evolve to where it is today? It's, it's, it's completely different. The marketing has kind of taken over. The terminology has changed. How would you describe, um, you know, this evolution and, and what the industry looks like today? Um, so that, that's an uh, interesting uh, point you, you mentioned, um, HD Moore, uh, because I, I remember I was very much stuck in Belgium and uh, providing, uh, I, I was working as an uh, integrator um, in, in Belgium at that time, basically building security services and focusing a little bit on penetration testing. But I was really, well, in, in Europe, I specifically was was really living in a bubble, and I remember HD more presenting at a FOSDEM uh, uh, conference, which was an open source conference where he talked about Metasploit and how he um, ported it uh, to Ruby to be able to run it on uh, on Windows and make it available to more people. I was starstruck when I when I saw him speak there. Right, uh, he 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 speaks like four hundred words per uh, per four hundred words per uh, second. He was the worst person to interview. <laughs> he's he's unbelievable. In in that time, a lot of people were were getting their toes wet in penetration testing, but th- there wasn't really an industry around it yet, right? There was more uh, an offensive offensive industry, but that was really really small and really focused. With the with the dawn of Metasploit, uh, and especially uh, Metasploit becoming available on Windows, uh, everybody had uh, their their fingers on on the on all the tools they needed to to do penetration testing. And uh, also, the funny part is that. At least from my perspective, when you looked at Metasploit, Metasploit was never really a penetration testing tool. It was an exploit development framework. 
so it was more geared towards the development of um, of exploits than um, than pure penetration testing workflow, right? Um, it's only since then that more and more people, uh, when when more and more people had access to the tools, uh, that an industry of penetration testing uh, was really born. So you, in, you in, in my perspective, you're saying the industry was born post the creation of Metasploit, Core Impact, and those tools. Those tools really pushed it mainstream. How I feel about it, yes. Yeah, it's really interesting to me to watch the evolution of this. I actually remembered when Metasploit was uh, described as evil, when people, yeah, when HDMore was being accused of uh, putting entire ecosystem at risk by having exploits easily available for anyone to point and click and and launch attacks, uh, to where it is today where, you know, Metasploit has been acquired by a legitimate penetration testing company, and it's a standard part of every defender's tool set. Is that surprising to you uh, to watch this, um, call it maturity over the years? No, I think the the world has come come to grips that uh, with, with the fact that you need to know offense to be um, to be good at defense. Um, the, the the quote I I use a lot uh, is one that was it was said to me by uh, Sergey Bradis. I don't know if you know uh, Sergey, yeah, no, no. Uh, but it was uh, it was actually said by something that uh, uh, sorry someone that worked in trust, uh, John Lambert in uh, the trustworthy yeah. computing yeah at Microsoft uh, and he he said um, defense is offense's child and i think that is a very good summary of where we are if there is no offense then defense really doesn't have any reason to exist and as offense develops defense develops with it so as a as a, as a defensive industry security cannot live without uh, the, the the knowledge created and uh, developed in in the offensive offensive industry absolutely this is why the argument is uh you know as a defender you have to think like an attacker before you start uh uh, even imagining uh building your security program let's talk a little bit let's dig in a little bit how how does pen testing differ from say red teaming or is that uh, a marketing uh creation that that's a very good question and some um probably a little bit of a pet peeve of mine we we come up with terms all the time. I feel, especially in the security industry, we we rather redefine a problem or redefine a certain certain aspect of our industry than actually solve the problem, right? Uh, so when we had penetration testing, there were people that were uh, turning penetration testing into basically vulnerability scanning, and then there were people that were doing full full on penetration testing. So there was a new term that was needed for that part of the industry that became red teaming. But then um, now you see red teaming trainings and they're basically trainings about phishing, right? So whenever we come up with a term, it means something and then marketing takes a run with it and it means means something completely different. uh, And we have a very hard time selling that uh, to the client because they cannot see the difference between what is a vulnerability scan and what is a penetration test. And that's also also why... um, uh, Chris Nickerson and Dave Dave Kennedy, myself, Ian Amit, um, and a lot of people that I cannot name right right now, right now um, have developed the Pentest standard, which basically describes the different phases of a of a pen test, and that is more developed as a, a guide for penetration testing buyers than it is developed for um, penetration testing sellers. 
practitioners, right? But I don't think it's quite fair to say red. You mentioned red teaming training is now simulated to fishing tests. Um, uh, you know, I've been peripherally involved in some, you know, looking at uh, some red teaming exercises. It's a lot more than just fishing mm-hmm. things. There are actual, you know, real oh, no, trophies. No, I, I, I agree. Um, so if you have companies that are serious about red teaming, 100% you're, you're getting a red team uh, exercise and that is full scope, gloves off, how can I steal your stuff, right? And that is that is pure red teaming. Right, and it demonstrates uh, real impact. Uh, the, the results demonstrate real impact. You're actually stealing something tangible and, and, and valuable. That, that, that is the idea behind uh, red teaming. The problem for me is, um, like, like I said in the beginning, I've worn, I've worn a lot of different hats. Um, I do virtual seasonal work uh, for some of my clients right now as well, where we basically send out an RFP. We say we want a red team exercise and we get five different proposals from five different companies. And they all look different. Um, they all look different. One one is a real penetration test. One is just a vulnerability scan with some phishing. Uh, so what, what what the industry sees as uh, penetration testing, um, as red teaming, or penetration testing, or um, adversary simulation, or whatever you want to call it, it it is always different. Yeah, even the sellers can't agree with uh, uh, about what it looks like. So let me ask you directly: You're acting as a virtual CISO for, say, startup ABC in San Francisco, and you're scoping out a red teaming exercise. What is the quote-unquote perfect red team? The the perfect red team for me um, starts with um, pre-engagement interactions. So. I, I want somebody to engage with me and my team to understand what my business is about, what they are targeting, um, and what is valuable to me, right? A, a, a red team needs to understand what they are after. Uh, if they are going to send me a report afterwards with uh, with 50 cross-site scripting attacks uh, and they were able to install something on my network uh, and get a shell, I cannot go to a board and say, hey, they got a shell, because that means nothing to them. Right, right. I one thing I find very important, and again, we're we're not gonna discern between penetration testing and red teaming and vulnerability scanning. I never want my uh, my testers to to develop a risk score. I think it's frankly very stupid to expect from somebody external to your organization to estimate the risk of what they are providing. So you're not a big fan of scorecarding. Um, I'm a big fan of scorecarding, but I what I what I want from my um, from my testers is first. Uh, a clear description of um, what what they found, uh, how I can replicate it, and uh, and the technical parameters of uh, why why it was possible. And then I feed that um, I, I leverage the the, the fair uh, risk management framework, which stands for factor analysis of information risk. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I basically am the translator between the technical testers and my business. So I sit together with the, with the owners of the systems that are being tested. Um, I get risk information, um, impact values from them, and then I marry those two sets of information into a risk scoring. I cannot expect from somebody external to my organization to give me a score. I'm going to get a CVSS score, or I'm going to get red, yellow, or green, and that means nothing to people that have to make decisions. Right. It has to be applied within the context of of what's in the organization, and that's something that can only be done internally. And that is my or the organization's responsibility. I, I, I think... One, one, one of the things that we really need to do is step away from expecting uh, risk valuations from, uh, from our testers. How often should a mature organization conduct pen tests or red team exercises on their, on, on their infrastructure? And I'll tell you why I'm asking the question. Do you know the argument against pen tests and red teaming is that this, this point in time, time boxed exercise 
uh, in organizations that are changing so rapidly, code is being shipped so often, you know, organizations changing rapidly, the, the, uh, the perimeter is gone, people are moving to zero trust. How often should an organization pursue this, keeping in mind that, you know, you're, you're, you're giving uh, testers a limited time and a limited scope to look at something? It depends a little bit, and I don't think there is one simple answer to it. Uh, we, we, we basically start this conversation um, through a Twitter interaction, right? So in, in my view, there are the best way is that you do continuous uh, penetration testing. And that's what I see most of my clients move to as well. Instead of uh, sending out an RFP every quarter or every, every six months for a focused penetration test, they engage uh, with me or other uh, penetration testing firms for uh, one, two, or three years, and we have a quarterly scope. Um, we, we focus on the finance system, we focus on the HR systems, we focus on the external par- perimeter, uh, and we basically continuously test their uh, their environment. Wait but a then, second, wait a second. Let's not, let's not um, uh, skip past this continuous testing, because I completely agree with you that this is where the industry needs to move to this te- continuous testing model. And what does that look like? What does that look like in practice? Let's say you're talking to a, let's say a member of your audience is a CISO trying to wrap his head around his budget and decisions around penetration testing, red teaming, and he's hearing the term continuous penetration testing. What exactly does that look like? To me, that that is basically a team that is dedicated to your to your organization, and you can you can outsource that. But most of the organizations that I see uh, moving to continuous testing, uh, insource their uh, their red team, uh, so they have people inside the organization that are solely responsible for continuously testing uh, their whole internal and external uh, environment, and sometimes also the third parties they work with. The, the, the issue there is that you're assuming that that's a mature organization that has the necessary skills and staff in place to handle a lot of that internally. What, what, what are you seeing? Are you yeah. seeing a lot of companies, out, most in most cases, companies outsourcing it to experts? Uh, like you and the other uh, major penetration testing firms? Not, not, not a continuous uh, testing. I, I, I see outsourcing um, from quite mature organizations, uh, but that is still uh, limited in time because it is, it is budget. Um, so you basically have a certain number of days. Uh, and I've, I have some clients where they say you have three weeks of time to create a budget, uh, but you can spend that over three or six months, right? So then... The, the idea is more to, to replicate an, um, a, a true adversary and identify described adversary and go low and slow. Instead of saying, we start on day one and now we have 10 days uh, and then it's done. You rather uh, budget what you have for penetration testing and that's the amount of resources that you dedicate to, to that testing. When, when it really comes to the continuous testing, um, that's where I see mostly the, 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 the internal, internal teams. It might be that some organizations uh, choose to outsource the continuous testing, uh, but that's still a team that's going to be available to you twenty four seven, right? So at, right. at the rates you see you see on the market right now, it would probably be smarter to to insource than to uh, than to outsource that. So you're wearing two hats. You work sometimes as a virtual CISO and then you're a principal consultant uh, at Wire Security, wearing both hats. Where does bug bounty programs fit uh, within this testing model where you're turning to the crowd and, you know, hoping uh, uh, that you're, you're going to incentivize external uh, crowdsource hacking uh, 
to to find bugs do you think there's a role where uh, a mature organization should have both can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of going one area versus the other i think bug bounties are on the same level as uh, the red teaming or continuous testing mm-hmm. uh, because one of the prerequisites of an organization that considers bug bounties or continuous testing is you need to be ready for um, for all the, the the reported bugs or or findings uh, if you don't have a structure set up and the necessary people inside to ingest those uh, those vulnerabilities and to actually fix them, then it's um, it's 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 not worth investing in in that type of service. Where right. where, where where I see uh, bug bounties come in is uh, on the level of of uh, efficiency, where um, and and this is practical reality from clients that I, that I work with as a, as a virtual CISO. Uh, there is a startup that I work with uh, that uh, where, where we moved most of the of the security part into the uh, secure development lifecycle, or we created a secure de- development lifecycle. So we're doing threat modeling. There's a lot of testing going in uh, in the continuous integration uh, pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then at the end, there is a there is a major build um, every every few months, uh, and that build is um, dedicated to uh, to a bug bounty program, so we we work with a bug bounty uh, provider to to test that that build uh, inside out, um, and the the results you get from there are are extremely useful and uh, I, in in my view much more valuable than a penetration test. Why? Why? Than a pure penetration test. Tell me why? Why do why why do you why are the results so different when it's 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 the same concept of skilled eyeballs looking at code. Well, and I know it's not uh, it's not done to tell about uh, to to talk about uh, rates and prices in in our industry, but um, it's cheaper. I mean, it's 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 cheaper. Yes, but you also get more eyes on your on your code. And if somebody has certain experience in in one part of the code, and especially when you look at functionality um, or uh, the, the the functional testing, the uh, the business logic testing. Um, you're going to get much better results with with multiple testers, with 20, 30, 40, 40 people that look at your code for uh, for two weeks, than uh, dedicating two resources that have no, no nobody in this industry can know everything. That that's just impossible. I I definitely don't know everything, and I don't know everybody that uh, knows knows all the details about uh, about everything. So having that that breadth of knowledge and that that Let's call it with a buzzword uh, that that hive mind mm-hmm. uh, is is extremely valuable, right? And it's economically more efficient. But on the flip side, there's a lot of yes. hidden cost and cost transfers that 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 need to be taken into consideration. Uh, you know, I yes. was again, I was peripherally involved with a, a Kaspersky Labs bug bounty program when we launched a couple of years ago before I left. And one of the the, the biggest disappointments with going the bug bounty route for us was. A lot of the stuff we got back was were were out of scope bugs, bugs that were not in scope, uh, small, low hanging things that we did have to ex- apply resources to fix and resources that we did not prepare for. And a lot of companies, I think, are learning that lesson where you go the bug bounty route and you're you know you're hoping to get good results from it, but the cost transfer of triaging those bugs and getting it into a system, uh, bugs that are out of scope. Uh, are not necessarily taken into consideration. Then there's also the flip side. I was talking to another company in the IoT space the other day, and they were saying, "I literally I can't physically ship, you know, a thousand units of a device 
to a thousand mm-hmm. uh, uh, researchers within a bug bounty program. So it doesn't necessarily work for everyone. But how do you get around that? Yes. How do you how do you advise CISOs or advise security decision makers about this cost transfer and the and the ability to be properly be prepared for a bug bounty program? Um, so I obviously being uh, being in the industry for twenty years, I have a lot of stories, and I don't, I, I don't want to use too much time. Um, talking about stories, but uh, I remember when um, one of my friends was working at Duo, um, Duo Security. They they also start they started one of the first bug, bug bounty programs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and he was complaining about um, the the quality of reports that he got. Um, so I sent him a direct message on Twitter saying, "Okay, this is my uh, my report for a vulnerability that doesn't exist, but I still want a T-shirt." And they actually printed a T-shirt for me that says, uh, "I did nothing for doing security, and I still got a T-shirt. I still, I still have the T-shirt. I, I'll send you a picture later." That's not <laughs> that. That's not a. Um, that's not a rare story, though. That's a real story that happens a lot of the times. Uh, yes. So um, I think it's very important to to clearly communicate to your um, to your audience what you are expecting from them. So you, you want a description of the vulnerability, you want proof of concept code, you want, uh, you want video. Um, that needs to be pretty well described in the, in the terms of engagement. Uh, when I work, for instance, with bug routes, we spend a lot of time together to, um, to describe those rules of engagement. So it's very clear for everybody involved that what is expected. Just sending me an e- email uh, saying, I found an ex- a, a cross-site scripting uh, vulnerability on, uh, on this page. Is not sufficient, and you shouldn't expect one thousand dollars for that. Right, but you, uh, and right, but you still have to have your uh, resources in place to just deal with that noise, right? Um, and that's a cost. There's not, a cost attached to that. No, not not if you clearly describe it. Um, if you if you get a report like that, the first triage is checking the boxes. Do do I have proof of concept code? Do I have the exact location of the bug? Do I have a description of, of the of, of the impact? Do do I have that information, which I already described in the rules of engagement? If those boxes are not checked, you send it back to the um, to to the tester or the person that reports it and say these are our rules of engagement. This is what I need from you. Please, please return it with uh, with that information. Right, but let's it's, say it's all about clear clear communications. Right, but let's say you don't even have cross site scripting in code uh, in scope, but you still get a submission for a cross site scripting bug. It's not in scope. You're not necessarily going to pay for it, but you still have, again, you still have to have your resources and your team in place to deal with it because it's a legitimate cross site scripting issue. <coughs> a lot of companies, I think, are not quite prepared for out of scope bugs being submitted and having to apply the the necessary people and tools. And yes, so um, out of scope bugs um, can can be a real issue. You you have to take them in just just like you do uh, the the in scope uh, vulnerabilities and and there you, you you need the processes in place and the people in place uh, to handle that, but that's not different between in scope or out of scope uh, bugs for me. All right, I want to switch gears a little bit. When you start a pen test, and I heard this from a penetration tester recently, and I was trying to wrap my head around the thought because I, I I don't know anything about anything, so I'm just trying to learn from you guys. When you start a <laughs> Uh, a pen tester told me when he gets uh, into the initial call, just the very first call, and he just get his scope document, he can tell within the first few hours. I believe Harun Mir also mentioned this to me in the podcast that within the first few hours you can tell where your entry point is going to be. Is that a fair assessment for most cases? Uh, I believe so. Yes. So you can pinpoint um, we can you can pinpoint the weak areas almost right away if they're using two-factor authentication, if something is not set up properly, if they're 
as a pen tester going into it, you have an idea about how you will tackle this in the very, very first few hours. Yes. So I, I think what we do, but probably are not very aware of, is um, actually the, the threat modeling exercise. As, as technical penetration testers with, with a really technical uh, background, we, we look at what is within scope of, of uh, our, our tests. Uh, and we break it down into um, into modules, into um, in basically create in our head flow diagrams, mm-hmm. and we see where uh, where the entry points are and where uh, probably the weakest uh, the, the weakest points are. Um, I, I I teach threat modeling courses to developers as well, and there we uh, approach it in a really structured way. Mm-hmm. But if 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 you cross the streets, right? You perform threat modeling because you look left and right, you see uh, how far the cars are from. Uh, away from you and you can estimate if it's safe to cross or not so threat modeling is really something that comes comes natural to to all people uh, and from uh, and as a penetration tester we look at a system and we we break it down and we see the the paths to 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 the valuable assets so it what? it's something that comes really natural yes what are some of the most common errors or common instances you run into as a penetration tester in the average organization? Where are those weak spots? And, and help the audience try to figure out what a security director or a defender's priority should be uh, just getting their infrastructure locked down to a, to a, a, a mature yes. level of risk assessment. So let's see first from the external perspective. So we're testing an organization from from the internet, right? We, so we have some applications, we have some uh, some devices. Um, we can maybe email people. It's very much leg, uh, legacy technology often. Uh, it's still default or very simple passwords. And it's an unmitigated known vulnerabilities. In, right, in so it's cases. patching. It's it's organizations that are not on top of patching. It's organizations yes. that are not on top of properly configuring deployments, even if it's your AWS infrastructure, your cloud infrastructure. Just some some sort yes. of configuration error that leaves everything exposed. Those are the types of things you're running into often. Yes, but we we also have to get rid of the myths that patching is easy. Scanning for, for vulnerabilities and listing for vulnerabilities is is very easy. Patching is not easy at all. Why isn't patching easy? It hasn't been easy for 20 years. Why haven't we reached a level where not necessarily it's easy, but it becomes manageable? One of the most important things that I learned uh, as, a, as a security professional is um, economics. So it basically has nothing to do with uh, security, but it has everything to do with security. Um, the, the problem is the, the right attribution of uh, incentive. Uh, what, what we do is we um, have a security team, we let them scan for vulnerabilities, and then we also give them uh, key performance in indicators around bringing down the number of vulnerabilities. The fact is that the security team cannot patch, vulnerab- um, cannot patch systems. That needs to happen um, with the agreement of the system owners. What we do is we assign the risk to the security team and then we make them responsible of patching. So the system owners, the program owners, um, and and the um, the operations team teams have no incentive to support the patching because they are not incentivized towards it. Uh, what you have to do is take your vulnerabilities, put them, uh, translate them into risk, and then assign the risk to the system owner. And once they have to sign off on accepting the risk and see how how high the risk related to those vulnerabilities actually is. And it applies to them and they're the owner. Yes. 
So you you have to work with risk and incentive uh, incentives to to make it happen. It's not something that your security team can do. Are the tools available uh, today to handle patching on a mega scale? Or, or and I know you mentioned that there's some some uh, uh, operational folks who don't own the risk, so there there's no incentive there. But are, do we have all the tools in place, or is or do we have an issue in on the on the tools and solution side to help handle the patching? Um, I feel there are plenty of tools in place um, nowadays. I, I think there is uh, something called uh, zero patch as well. Um, but there, there's plenty of information publicly available about about patches. Every every vulnerability management tool uh, gives you the information that is necessary to identify the patches and even identify the impact. And a lot of the vulnerabilities that are uh, still out there are are so old uh, that you are dealing with legacy systems that 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 need upgrades. Yeah. Uh, and if 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 you cannot patch, you can still make decisions to uh, to segregate to isolate the systems. It's not just patching that um, that that uh, remedi- uh, remediates vulnerabilities. There's a lot of other things that you can do within your network, within your infrastructure, um, that uh, can mitigate the impact of uh, of patching. And that's that's also where we as security professionals come in. Again, I'm probably going to offend some people, uh, and that's uh, that's perfectly fine. It's <laughs> uh, fine. I I come from 20 years of um, operational experience in in small and big organizations. So I've worked with AS400, I've worked with AIX, um, I've done networking, I've done system system engineering. Um, I've like you said, I've been I've been around the block. If I read um, penetration testing reports, uh, it's often well we found this vulnerability and you need to patch it. Now my question then, just like the question you you asked is uh, what if I cannot patch it? With with my background, I can uh, tell them easily that they need to do something else. Um, and it could be something they change on the web application firewall, something they um, they change on the reverse proxy. Um, they isolate the system in, in a specific network segment, so it's um, the, the the ports that are impacted are not exposed to to a large number of systems within the network. There's a lot of things that you can do that mitigates that uh, that vulnerability and that lower the risk. And it is my role as a security professional to go to the system owner and say. Okay, patching is um, patching is preferred, but there is impact to the patch as well. So instead of patching, we can also um, do this and this and this. That doesn't reduce the risk by one hundred percent. So there is still residual risk, but we reduce the risk by twenty or thirty percent. How much of patching is hard is just a reflection of an organization that doesn't even know what their assets are or where it's distributed. Because yes. again, that's another issue. I talk about this patching issue with defenders all the time, and they said, "Well, we we can't even get asset management right. How can we patch if we don't even know where it is?" And it is Drupal Geton or Drupal Armageddon or whatever it was called recently. There were companies that were widely exposed. They had no idea they had Drupal installations on X Y Z places. Uh, yes. <laughs> so this is why security is hard. It's you know you talk about adding mitigations in place of uh, this window, this patching window. Uh, the tools are there, the incentives are not there. But then if you don't get the asset management piece right, you're still back to square one. I I agree one hundred percent. So how do we I, fix I that, or that is that even fixable? For, for, uh, for 50 percent of security relies on good IT hygiene good IT operations. And the the first thing you need to do is, um, in, in my opinion, uh, break down the walls between your security team, your um, your 
development team, your operations team. So then we're, we're talking about another buzzword, uh, DevSecOps or uh, DevOps, whatever whatever you want to call it. Uh, those walls need to need to be uh, broken down. Uh, what you're not going to build is is a database of all your assets that is maintained uh, through an interface. In my opinion, that doesn't exist and that, that's never going to work. What you have to do is, within your organization, look for source, sources of data. A lot of people postpone starting with vulnerability management until they have some kind of uh, configuration database, uh, CMDB, right? Um, actually, you should see your vulnerability management as a source of data for that um, uh, for that uh, CMDB. You're basically correlating that information uh, with information from your DACP, from your DNS, maybe even uh, packet captures from your um, from from your uh, from your network, uh, and that is all data that, that needs to come together and basically forms a dynamic CMDB. It is very often that we are uh, doing vulnerability management within with, with an organi- within an organization, and we scan the network and we scan all the assets and we find the vulnerabilities. And a month later, another scan runs, and suddenly the IP address that was uh, once a Windows server suddenly is a Red Hat server, right? So your your network is not static. Your network is that dynamic, if, especially now that we see um, more and more uh, virtual machines and containers coming up. It's not just a database. It's a dynamic view of your of your whole um, IT infrastructure that you build from the data sources that are available to you. And those are logs. Those are DNS servers, DHCP servers, vulnerability management. Anything anything that can provide data should be taken in and um, build a da- database and maintain it uh, dynamically. That doesn't guarantee that you have total visibility, but at least it's a start. At least using um, available... you, you you will you will never have a, a full full visibility. Never, I, right? I that's that's that, that's, I, I that's something people that's something people should wrap their heads around. That total visibility is is an impossibility, and you can yes. use your existing data points to build uh, this thing you're talking about to give you a level of visibility that uh, fits into your risk management and your threat modeling. Agreed. Um, so one, one of the quotes that I use in my threat modeling training that I learned from um, Adam Shostak uh, is, a, is a quote by George Box that says, all models are wrong, uh, but some models are useful. And that, that's how you should look at your view of the network as well. You're, you're, you're not going to have a complete view, but you're going to have a useful view. It makes absolute sense. We're running out of time. I just want to throw some very quick questions at you before we wrap up. Uh, what are yes, some, no uh, put on your virtual CISO hat, what are some of the most underhyped, underappreciated technology solutions out there today? And what would you say are the most overhyped? What are what are some technology tools coming down the pike that really is, is intriguing to you? And which ones that are just way overhyped that you just turn a blind eye Ooh. to them. So when, when it comes to overhype, and I'm probably very, very jaded, uh, very, very biased on that subject, um, is anything in regards to uh, machine learning and uh, artificial, artificial intelligence. Um, I thought we could got through this podcast without mentioning those. Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned those at least once. <laughs> so anything, anyone, um, any, anyone, uh, anyone hawking wares around ML, AI, blockchain is automatic. It's automatic kind of like you're, 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 you're jaded um, on those. So I'm, uh, I'm still reading a book. I've, I'm, I'm not through it uh, just yet. Uh, that is called uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. So mathematical destruction, mm-hmm. uh, which um, 
which talks about uh, the dangers of uh, algorithms in, in making decisions. Uh, and my, my view is very simple that the way we apply algorithms is extremely dangerous because we're, we're creating a myopic view and we're uh, starting to trust the algorithms to, while the, the algorithms that themselves don't have a maturity, uh, matur- the maturity that is necessary yet. Uh, and they've, they've not proven themselves. I completely um, agree. But at the same time, the algorithms and the machine learning is what's going to help the industry as a whole get through the skill shortage where you have to turn to automation to handle a lot I, of these things. So, I, I totally agree. But we we have to, if, if I look at an um, AI or ML uh, solution, uh, my mind, and then I'm going back to the to the virtual CISO hat, is I'm going to have to assign at least one or two p- people to, to managing that. Uh, because I, I cannot rely on it one, 100%, right? There, there's still not going to need to be eyes on that. Correct. It's not um, mature enough yet. And the problem is you don't have you, you don't have people to, to handle basic blocking and tackling, uh, trying to figure out that yes. within the skills shortages. It's kind of the paradox because yes. you need the automation to fill in in places where you just can't find bodies. And then you need bo- bodies to manage it because it's not quite mature. Yeah. Um, and then when, when it comes to underhyped... Um, yeah, what, what are you I, excited about? What I'm excited, excited about every day is, is working with people uh, because it's surprising what you can do with a, with a one and a half or two day uh, threat reporting course with developers, right? Um, and developers is just one example. Um, we in the, in the uh, screening industry are often saying that uh, developers are the worst part of our industry and they are creating all the vulnerabilities. But the fact is that the developer doesn't come into come into work every day and say, "I'm going to write code that uh, contains vulnerability." What they are what, what they are creating is what they are asked to create. So what what we are doing with the threat modeling and with uh, uh, teaching them about security, and there's a lot of um, good training platforms and information available um, outside of just the consulting world. What we teach them is think about security as uh, as requirements, just as you are thinking about functionality requirements. Functional requirements that uh, the, the the business puts on you, you have to think about security as well. And when we teach them about security, um, I see them go into their Scrum meetings, and they actually are able to stand up against program or uh, product managers and being able to say, "Well, we cannot do what you are requesting from a functional perspective because it has this and this impact on a security from a security perspective." And they they, they are actually pushing the change. It's not about technology; it's about empowering people to make security decisions. You're not creating secure software with uh, hiring 200 security people, right? You're creating secure software by empowering um, your 200 developers with the right information and with the right knowledge to make those uh, security decisions. It's not about us as security professionals, it's about the people um, that, that, that build the software and us supporting and uh, and helping them. Absolutely, I'm 100% in agreement. We're at 45 minutes already, so uh, we'll have to okay. uh, cut this short, but this is a conversation we, we need to have. Um, I'd love to have you back on the podcast one day to really dig into, you know, I have on my list, I want to talk to you about zero trust and migrating uh, traditional yes. companies to the zero trust model. I have a lot of things on the list that I wanted to talk to you about, but... Uh, you were so good that again. we didn't get time to do it. So here's the here's a place where you get. Um, tell me where do where do people find you? Where do people find Wire Security? What's coming up for you next? Are you speaking at any conferences? Where where can the people find more information? Um, so I have a website uh, that is wire-security.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the easiest way to get in touch with me is on uh, on Twitter, um, Wim Remis. 
from there I can move to to email or uh, anywhere else. But Twitter is probably the, the the best platform to get in touch with me. Yeah, Twitter has become everyone's business card, and you're also one of the organizers for yeah. BrewCon. That did that already happen this year? Uh, no, so I'm I'm not really one of the organizers anymore. By starting my own company, um, we we had a team of people that are uh, very good at running uh, running BrewCon. So I'm I'm not that involved anymore. Um, but it's uh, it's happening. Um, it's actually the tenth anniversary anniversary of BrewCon this year. Uh, so what they've decided is to do an extra day of uh, of talks and bring ten of the talks from uh, the previous ten years back and uh, give an updated version of that talk, which I think is very very exciting uh, concept for the for the conference. That's really and interesting. It's... It'll be it'll be interesting to see if anything has changed because in many cases, you yeah. know, as a journalist in my past life. I, I read a lot of the security news stories today, and it's the same stories I wrote ten years ago, fifteen years ago. It's it's all the same. The, what what I always say to people, uh, there is a report um, called the Where Report that was written in 1970, and everybody that's starting security today should should read that first because all the problems that are described there are problems we are still battling today. Thank you very much, Wim. I uh, hope we can get a chance to do it again sometime. Yeah, I, I would look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs>